I've told y'all before that I used to do lighting in Hollywood for movies and videos and commercials and TV shows. So as I was preparing this sermon, I remembered a time when I got to work on the Drew Carey show. Uh, I wasn't particularly a fan of the Drew Carey show, I was more of a Seinfeld guy, but I had seen a few episodes here and there. So when I arrived on the set of the Drew Carey show, I had no idea that I would end up meeting some of my favorite musicians. Actually, the very first person that I met that day was Drew Carey. We both pulled into the studio at the same time and we greeted one another and said hello and I like to believe that he told everybody that he met Benji Magnus that day. (laughs) But meeting Drew Carey was not the most exciting part of my day. It was meeting some of my favorite rock and roll musicians. The episode being filmed that day was titled In Ramada Davida, a play on words of the song In Agata Davida by Iron Butterfly. And the episode centered around Drew Carey's band being hired to play at the local Ramada Inn. And in this episode, they were auditioning several guitarists for their band. And there's a funny scene in the episode that's only a few minutes long, but it contains around 10 famous musicians auditioning to be the guitarist for Drew Carey's band. And the funny thing is that they end up turning down all of these famous and very talented musicians, such as Slash, guitarist extraordinaire for Guns N' Roses. I mean, they turned down Slash. It's amusing when you watch it. They turned down Joey Ramone, lead singer of the Ramones. He can't play guitar and he can't act, that's for sure. They turned down Dave Mustaine, lead singer and guitarist for thrash metal band Megadeth. Now, the funny thing in this scene is that Dave Mustaine is shredding this guitar solo. It's like, you know, really fast stuff. And they say to him, whoa, whoa, don't be nervous, son. Just slow down. (laughs) To which Dave Mustaine says sheepishly, it's supposed to sound that way. They turned down Dusty Hill, bass player for the legendary rock and roll band ZZ Top. If you know anything about the Texas rock band ZZ Top, you know that at least two of their members are known for their famous long beards. Their drummer, by the way, doesn't have a beard, but his name is Frank Beard. That's a whole nother sermon. So in this scene, at the end of the audition, Drew Carey asks Dusty Hill, Are you real attached to the beard? To which Dusty replies, hey man, it's a Texas goatee. (laughs) Other famous musicians that auditioned were Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, one of my favorite bands. I remember being in second grade and we could bring, our teacher let us bring 45s to school and we could play them during this break. And other kids brought like Disco and Donna Summer and I brought a Cheap Trick 45. And my teacher was like, what? They auditioned Roy Clark, famous country musician and from Hee Haw fame. They auditioned Lisa Loeb, the queen of 90s one-hit wonders, and Johnny Lang, the famous teenage blues prodigy. So they turned down all of these famous musicians, and they eventually hired Joe Walsh, the guitarist for the Eagles, and he lands the gig as their guitarist. So for me, it was an incredible day of filming. I got to see and meet some famous musicians. But one thing I remember about being on the set that day in the studio is that the scene that I provided lighting for was only about a minute long. It actually occurs 
right before the audition in the episode. And so I arrived there just after lunch, and I sat around all day getting paid and eventually getting paid double time, which I didn't mind. And then when it was finally dark and we got all set up, the scene was shot very quickly, and then it was a wrap. And so all of this work that all of these people did went into filming just a few minutes of this show. And that's how it is in the movies. Tons of work, tons of people are involved behind the scenes, and sometimes it's just for one little small scene. And the scene that the musicians were involved in that day on the Drew Carey show was only about three minutes long, but think about all of the details and the logistics that went into bringing all of those musicians to L.A. so that they could film this episode. Each of them appeared on the camera for only a few seconds, and yet all of this work behind the scenes went into getting them into the studio that day. There were around 10 famous musicians that the production company had to coordinate schedules for, buy plane tickets for, hotel arrangements, limo rides to the studio, costumes and clothing, and each musician had their own guitar and amplifier In the scene. So the set designer had to get 10 different amplifiers and 10 different guitars for each of the musicians. The amount of work and the logistics that went into those two very short scenes is incredible when you think about it. All of these people working behind the scenes just to film one scene that isn't even that long. All of this activity going on behind the scenes in order to make the story move along. And this is precisely how our lives are. Every day we do so many mundane and ordinary things that are moving along the story of our lives, and God is busy working behind the scenes in all of it. Every day we do 1,000 things, and God is busy working in the tiny details of each mundane thing that we do. Every day, God is working to move the story of our lives along for his glory. And we see that in Esther chapter 6. Of course, we see it better than Esther and Mordecai saw it in real time. As the audience, we are watching this sitcom unfold before us, and we see what the characters don't see. But that's how it often is, isn't it? In the middle of the scenes of our lives, we often can't see God working. We can't see him moving. And that's why we often need this reminder. And Esther and Mordecai needed it back then too. We often need to be reminded. And I have a hunch some of you need this reminder today. God is working behind the scenes even when he can't be seen. God is working behind the scenes even When he can't be seen. How easy it is to forget this very basic truth. You see it all over the Bible. God works behind the scenes all over the pages of the Bible. It's before our very eyes. And yet sometimes we can't see it. The theological term for this is providence. And the Westminster Confession of Faith describes providence this way. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things 
from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So behind the scenes of all of our lives, we know this is happening. Our Heavenly Father is upholding and directing and disposing and governing all creatures, all actions, and all things, from the greatest even to the least, from the most significant to the most mundane. And He's doing it by His most wise and holy providence. That, my friends, ought to be enough to get you through this week. And that, my friends, is what we'll see as clear as day in Esther chapter 6. So look at Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, let me set the scene for you. We left off last week at the end of chapter 5 at Haman's house. And I assume it was sometime in the evening and he was drawing up plans to build this large stake that he could impale Mordecai on. So we expect the next scene in chapter 6 to be Esther's second party the next day. You remember she invited Haman and King Ahasuerus to another party the next day. So that's what we expect at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But we begin chapter 6 and we are not at Esther's party. We are in the king's palace and it is in the middle of the night. So the author is leaving this tension intact. He's not in a hurry to resolve it. We're left wondering what's going to happen to Esther when she makes her pitch to the king to save the Jews. But we never get there, at least not for a while. The author just leaves us in suspense. So there's been a change of scenery A few hours have passed since we left Haman's house, and now we're in the king's palace, and it's sometime in the middle of the night because verse 1 tells us, on that night, the king could not sleep. I love the Hebrew of Esther chapter 6, verse 1. It's actually fun to say. Belila hahu no dada shanat hamelech. It's fun to say. You know, this week as I was working on this, I came home for lunch and our two youngest girls, Piper and Sephora, were fighting and arguing over this toy right as I walked in from lunch. And I walked in and I said, Belila hahu no nada shanat hamelik. And they looked at me like, Dad has lost his mind. Belila hahu no nada shanat hamelik. It reads literally, on that night, the sleep of the king fled. The king's sleep fled from him. His sleep eludes him. So King Ahasuerus is tossing and turning in his bed. He's trying to fall asleep, but nothing works. Like Elvis, his sleep has left the building. By the way, this is my life verse, Esther 6.1. It describes my life perfectly. I want this verse on my gravestone. I might get it tattooed on my arm. You see, I'm a light sleeper. So basically, I live Esther 6-1 every night. 
And my kids have nothing to do with this. Well, sometimes they do. I live Esther 6-1 most nights. So even though King Ahasuerus is a sleazy, drunk, womanizing king, I feel his pain here in verse 1. I feel you, bro. And so what do you do when you can't sleep? You bring out the royal spreadsheets. You bring out the royal records and the budget and all of your data and the records and you have someone read it to you. This would be the equivalent of watching C-SPAN in the middle of the night. This is not riveting reading. This is not a Stephen King novel. This is government paperwork. File after file after file of so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did that and so what? In fact, it's possible that Ahasuerus had these records brought out to him precisely because they are so boring and he's hoping they will put him to sleep. So as Haman's servants are out building the gallows to impel Mordecai on, the king's servants are bringing the king stacks of government files for him to read. This is comical. This is supposed to be a funny thing. We're supposed to laugh. We're supposed to hear a laugh track in our heads as if we're watching a new sitcom on NBC called Esther. Of course, we know more than King Ahasuerus does at this point. We know that providence is at work here. We know that God is working behind the scenes here. In fact, this is what the Jewish commentators say happened in Esther chapter 6 verse 1. They say that God told an angel, hey, get down there and wake up that pagan king. Somebody's trying to kill my people, so go wake that king up. And it's the bad case of insomnia that a pagan king is suffering from that God will use to start all of the reversals that make up this book. Esther 6, 1 is the hinge point of the story. In fact, even the way the story is constructed points to this. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author of the book of Esther constructed this story using a chiastic structure. Let me show you. It's on the the back of your sermon notes page. It comes from one of my professors, Dr. Gordon Johnston, in seminary. There's a chiastic structure here. And so the hinge point and the turning point that begins all of these reversals is that phrase that says, that night the king could not sleep. This is the turning point in the narrative. This is the hinge point. This is where the reversals start to unfold and they actually parallel earlier episodes in the story. And what a rather mundane thing that Yahweh uses to begin saving his people. The insomnia of a pagan king becomes the catalyst for the Lord to begin the process of saving his people. Isn't that like our God? I love that God works this way. I love that he uses a little insomnia to bring about redemption. And here's how it unfolds. The king's servants bring out all of these government files for the king to read. And one of his servants just happens. You've got to have air quotes. One of these servants just happens to open the folder that details how Mordecai saved the king's life five years earlier. 
So as Ahasuerus is reading the royal boring records, he just so happens, I think the author is winking at us now, this is supposed to be a funny thing, it just so happens that the servant discovers that Mordecai was never rewarded for uncovering the assassination plot on the king. Remember what happened back in chapter 2? Those two thugs, Big Thana and Teresh, wanted to kill the king and somehow Mordecai found out about it and he told Esther about their plans and these guys were killed for trying to kill the king. So as the king is reading the royal boring records, he somehow discovers that Mordecai never got rewarded for this deed. It's been five years since this happened And Mordecai is now about to get rewarded. We should stop for a second and rehearse our big idea because it's just so obvious, right? God is working behind the scenes even when he can't be seen. Think about Mordecai. It's been five years since he saved the king's life. He has probably given up on receiving recognition. Of course, we can see God's hand moving because we are outside the story. We know more than Mordecai at this point, but inside the story, it's dark. Mordecai goes from saving the king's life to receiving a death threat, but not just for him, also for his daughter Esther and all of the Jews. Inside the story, it's dark. Inside this episode, it's dark and somewhat hopeless. It all depends on what the king says when Esther talks to him at her second party. So for Mordecai and Esther, right now the bad things that are happening appear as just that. Bad things that are happening. Mordecai gets skipped over for recognition and his arch enemy Haman gets the promotion and then he plans to kill Mordecai. So Mordecai probably feels like he's forgotten. Maybe he even thinks that God has forgotten him. But what Mordecai doesn't know yet, and what we're about to find out, is that God has not forgotten Mordecai. God has not forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve to send the snake crusher, the dragon slayer. God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. So God is not about to let Haman wipe out his people. God has a plan to save all nations, races, and people groups through his son Jesus. And he's not about to let some insecure Persian politician ruin that. God has indeed been working behind the scenes in the story. And in his wisdom, he has delayed Mordecai being rewarded until this very moment a few hours before he is about to find out that he is going to be impaled to death on a stake. So God caused Mordecai's great deed in saving the king to go unrewarded for five years just so that he could wake up a pagan king in the middle of the night so that pagan king could read about Mordecai's action and then reward him in the middle of the night. You can file that under providence. So let's get personal now. What about your story? Where are you struggling to believe that God is working behind the scenes in your life? Maybe you're praying for a situation and you're wondering, is God doing anything? Maybe you're praying for someone, for their heart to turn. One of your children, your spouse, a loved one, a friend. Where are you struggling to believe 
that God is working behind the scenes. What's happening in your life that's causing you to say that you can't see what God is doing? Where have you been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show up? And he hasn't. What's going on in your life that makes you think God has forgotten you and that maybe he doesn't care? Are you wondering today why what is happening is happening? No one in the book of Esther knows why what is happening is happening. And I assume that you experience those times as well. Why is this happening, God? What is going on? God, what are you doing in my life? Why won't you intervene? There will be times in your life when you ask these questions, and that's okay. Maybe you're asking them now. Maybe you're wondering why what is happening is happening. Maybe you're thinking that life is not a sitcom with a laugh track. Maybe you're thinking that life feels more like a horror movie. And just like Esther and Mordecai, from within the story, things look bad to you. Things look dark. And things seem hopeless. And that's just how life is in a broken, sin-wrecked world. Things appear to be out of control. Things appear to be hopeless. Things appear to be lost. Things appear to be completely unredeemable. And so we have to learn and relearn this truth that God is working behind the scenes even when he can't be seen. We have to relearn this truth often, don't we? I had to remind myself of this truth this week. Maybe you need to relearn it right now. That God is, in fact, working behind the scenes in the episode of your life that's airing right now. And one of the ways that God is working behind the scenes in the book of Esther is when Haman arrives on the scene. A funny thing happens on the way to the gallows. A funny thing happens as Haman is on the way to the gallows. His plan to kill Mordecai runs smack into the providence of God. Look at verse 4. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Keep in mind what Haman was up to and how he felt when he left his house earlier in the evening. He was livid. He couldn't enjoy how wonderful his life was because Mordecai, his archenemy, would not bow down and honor him. 
So Haman took the suggestion of his wife and his friends to build some gallows to hang or impale Mordecai on. So Haman shows up at the king's palace and he intends to make a scene. He plans on asking the king for his permission to murder Mordecai. But just as Haman enters the palace, the king says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And just like that, Haman is distracted. I imagine his blood was boiling at this point. He was chomping at the bit to kill Mordecai. But when he hears the king ask this question about honoring someone, Haman flips a switch. It's like my kids, they could be throwing a temper tantrum. And if I just say the word candy, they stop. And you can look at a two-year-old, just like, you say candy, like, "Eh, candy. Just like that. And that's Haman here. He's breathing murder, about to flip his lid. And then he hears the word honor, and he flips a switch. And when the king asks the question, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman assumes that the king is talking about him. So Haman says to himself, who would the king like to honor more than me? And so Haman comes up with this over-the-top ceremony to honor himself. In fact, notice three times in verse 6, 7, and 9, three times Haman uses this phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman is so full of himself. It's his pride that causes him to make a major slip here. Haman just bursts out the answer, assuming that he is the intended target of the king's favor. But he forgets the protocol here. He should have said, if it please the king then do this. But he's so excited that he's about to be honored that he just blurts out the answer. Let me see, I know. Dress this man whom the king wants to honor in the king's finest robes, sit him atop the king's horse and parade him through the streets as far as the eye can see and say this repeatedly, this is the man that the king honors. He's the man. And then Haman hears the words that made his world crumble down all around him. King Ahasuerus says, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. And just like that, the political scene in Persia changes. Haman's plan ran right into the providence of God. Haman is getting a lesson in providence, which Ralph Davis describes this way. Providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. That's not all of it, but some of it. When I use providence here, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. Haman just got schooled in that wonderful, strange, mysterious, and unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. He just got a lesson in how God works on behalf of his people and how he often does it frequently over and under and around and through and in spite of the most common stuff of our lives and even the bias of our wills. Haman just learned that this is not Yahweh's first rodeo. God has seen all of this before. 
In fact, ever since Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, the devil, the dragon has been using mankind to try to stop Jesus, the snake crusher, the dragon slayer, from showing up and redeeming his people. Haman just experienced firsthand God's providence, which Augustus Strong describes as God's attention concentrated everywhere. That's God's providence. His attention concentrated everywhere. God's attention was concentrated on waking up a pagan king. God's attention was concentrated on stopping Haman's evil plan. And God's attention was concentrated on saving his people. And somehow, even Haman's friends and his wife were clued in to this kind of providence too. Look at verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were there yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. What's interesting is that we don't get to eavesdrop on the conversation between Mordecai and Haman. Wouldn't it be great to see that and hear that? We don't get any details on how their meeting went. I kind of picture it this way. Haman saying, um, hello, Mordecai. Um, the king wants to honor you before the whole city, so put this nice-looking royal robe on, and, and we have the king's horse, Seabiscuit, ready and waiting for you, and, and I'm going to accompany you and lead you around the city, and I'm going to tell everyone to honor you. I'm going to tell everyone that you're the man. What, what's that? I'm, I'm going to tell everyone that you're the man. I'm sorry, come again. I'm going to tell everyone that you're the man. The author doesn't give us anything about the conversation here. He just assumes that we've seen a movie scene like this before. He knows that we are smart enough to figure out how awkward that conversation was. It was enough for the author to simply record in verse 10 that King Ahasuerus, for the first time in this book, calls Haman's enemy by these words, Mordecai the Jew. We don't even get to eavesdrop on the conversation between Mordecai and Haman, but we know exactly what it was like. Awkward. And so Haman does everything the king told him to do. He parades Mordecai through the city, and then he hightails it back home with his tail between his legs. Haman has seen better days. And so he returns to the scene of the crime, his house, where he patched, hatched this plan to murder Mordecai. But when he gets home, his closest friends and his wife tell him that he is no match for the God of the Jews. Verse 13, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Somehow, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and somehow his friends knew more about providence. Somehow they knew more about Yahweh than Esther and Mordecai do. 
You would expect those words to roll off of the lips of Esther and Mordecai. As Jews, you would expect Esther and Mordecai to rattle off the following words when Haman's law went into effect to kill the Jews. You would expect Esther and Mordecai to say, we are of the Jewish people and Haman will not overcome us but will surely fall before us. That's what Esther and Mordecai should have said back in chapter 4 when they got the news that Haman was going to kill all the Jews. But Esther and Mordecai have assimilated into Persian culture. They have compromised in huge ways. I almost just said huge, didn't I? Huge ways. And they seem to be Jewish in name only. They're disconnected from the heritage is the people of God. Haman's wife and friends appear to know more about God than Esther and Mordecai. They seem to know more about providence than those two do. But Mordecai and Esther are also about to run right into the providence of God. Even though they are not model, gospel-centered believers, they are seeing the hidden God keep his promises. Even though they have been fickle, they are seeing Yahweh be faithful to his promises. And today, you too, right now, have run into the providence of God. You have run right into God, upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures, all actions, and all things from the greatest even to the least, from the most significant to the most mundane by his most wise and holy providence. Today, you have run right into that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over and under and around and through and in spite of the most common stuff of our lives and even the bias of our wills. Oh, you may not see God moving right now in your life and you may not understand what is happening right now in your life, but you will soon, someday, maybe sooner, maybe later. But one day in this life or in the next, you will know for certain That God is working behind the scenes even when he can't be seen. In fact, God has been working behind the scenes for all eternity. In eternity past, God was working behind the scenes and he determined to create a people whom he knew would sin and he purposed to save them through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. God was working behind the scenes to save you in eternity past. And he was working behind the scenes before you came to be united to Christ by faith. You were walking around, Christians, spiritually dead, dead in sin, blind and lost. And the Spirit of God was working behind the scenes and orchestrating you hearing and responding to the gospel. In Genesis 3, it seems like the fairy tale will become a horror movie. In fact, the whole Bible reads like that. Is the snake crusher ever going to come? Is the dragon slayer ever going to come? Even Jesus' birth seemed like a horror movie. John tells us in Revelation 12 that the dragon, the devil, wanted to eat up the baby Jesus when he was born. 
And certainly his death on the cross was a dark moment too. But God is always at work behind the scenes. Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead. It looked dark when he died, but God was working. It looked dark many times in the Bible, and certainly in the book of Esther it does. But God is always working, busy writing scenes, busy writing stories with ups and downs and plot twists and and shock and anticipation and nail-biting and on-the-edge-of-your-seat kind of scenes. And you can trust him to resolve the story. He's the director. And in the end, our hero comes and he kills the dragon and gets the girl. That's the good news of the gospel. In the end, our hero comes and he slays the dragon and he gets the girl. Our hero Jesus came and He killed, as John describes him in Revelation 12, 9. He killed the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. In the end, Jesus, our hero, comes. He kills the great dragon. He gets the girl, his bride, the church. And God specializes in stories like this. And the story of your life that he's writing may be similar. But he specializes in these stories with plot twists and ups and downs and on the edge of your seat, biting your nail kinds of moments. God specializes in writing these stories and then resolving them for your good and his glory. So you can trust him today. You can trust the snake crusher. You can trust the dragon slayer. Right now, you may not understand what God is doing in your life, but one day you will. You can trust him. And you can trust me when I say to you that you will never regret for one moment any time that you trust God. You will never regret for one moment any time in your life that you trust God's promises. You will never be disappointed for trusting God's promises. You will be glad for every time you chose to hang on by faith to the truth that you know about your God. In his great mercy, God intervened to save his people in the book of Esther. And in his great mercy, he intervened to save us through his son, Jesus. And if he gave us Jesus, will he not give us all that we need? As Paul says in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given you all that you need in his son, and he will continue to give you everything you need, and you can trust him for that right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. You're not boring. Oh, how boring our lives would be if we were writing the story. But you're a God who has plot twists. There's ups and downs. There's tension. There's moments, Father, where 
we're biting our nails and we're on the edge of our seat and you're working through everything in and around and under in spite of us through the very common mundane things of our lives. Right now, God, you're busy working and we can't see it. But you're going to resolve the story for our good and your glory. What a God you are. You're not boring. You're quite fascinating, actually. And we want to worship you today. May what we've heard about you today from your word cause us to stand and sing. And that's all because of Jesus, because Jesus paid it all. In his name we pray, amen.